nation. And we pray that you would use these funds to extend your kingdom here and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. And we will be taking uh, a collection for the Deacon's Fund at the end. Well, good morning, everybody. See, it's not only Super Bowl Sunday. It's also a glorious morning outside. Me and the kids actually went outside yesterday, like without coats and scarfs and all that stuff. And we played in the backyard, and the sun was coming down, and it was warm on our faces, and it was beautiful. You know, a lot of people were half tempted to have the service out in the, out in the lawn today. Wouldn't that have been cool? But, you know, you can't do things for the moment. But it's nice out there. And it just brings back to you, you know, there were a few times this winter when I was, you know, I, I, I'm in bed and I'm wearing my coat and my pants. I don't know if you guys do this, but it was just too cold for pajamas. And you're just there and you're like, when will it get warm again? Will it ever get warm? And finally, you start to see the buds start to form on the trees, right? And the birds are out singing because they know it's coming, right? Because eventually God always brings this deliverance. And I think one of the reasons for seasons is that we can see the glory of God and creation and salvation, even in these little trips around the sun that we have. And there's a certain design to that, right? They always say if the earth were a little bit closer to the sun, it would be a scorched ball of dirt, right? And a little bit farther from the sun, it would be a frozen ball of ice. And yet it's at just the right place, at just the right time, with exactly the right satellite, the moon going around it, not only to give the phases of the moon for the keeping of time, but it's what makes the waves go back and forth across the sea as the moon pulls the waters of the earth, which cover three-fourths of the planet, back and forth. And that produces the winds, and the winds produce the clouds, and the clouds pour out rain on the earth so that our crops can grow. It's a pretty complicated system. And if one thing goes wrong on it, all life on earth would vanish within a matter of years, right? And yet it's glorious. So today we're going to be talking about this second part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the salt and light section. Now this is kind of a heavy one. You all know that the focus of Presbyterian and Reformed theology is always the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? That we are saved by the grace of God alone, not because we're good people. And we're saved through faith alone, not by our good works. And we're saved to the glory of God alone, not to our own glory. But there are many times when God picks up the, uh, the, the stick and he kind of gives us a little spanking, right, in the Bible. Because just because we're not saved by our good works doesn't mean that he doesn't expect good works. Those two things are different. What the Bible seems to say about that is, is if you're truly my children, if you're truly children of the living God, not because he'll like you better if you do better or he'll like you worse if you do worse, but because you're his kids, he expects you to manifest his character and nature in your behavior. So it's not cause and effect. He doesn't say, be good and I'll like you more. That's not the tone of Scripture. Christ was good for us. We're saved on the basis of his righteousness, not our own. But he does say that if you're my kids, you should act like my kids, right? And here he gets all the way down to talking about it like this. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under other people's feet. Now, we all know this is an analogy, and the analogy is salt. 
and the earth. Salt brings flavor to things, right? Salt makes things delicious that are rather bland. It, it doesn't take over the taste. It emphasizes the taste that's already there. And then he says, you are the light of the world. Now, who is really the light of the world? Christ, right? Well, here, he's calling you the light of the world. Now, that burden can't just escape us, right? That's pretty heavy. What, me? No, you be the light of the world. I'll just follow you around, right? But no, here it's Jesus saying, you are going to be the light of the world. He is the light. We are the reflection of that light in the world that presents him. A lot of people have a problem with the fact that 50 days after the resurrection, Jesus rose into the heavens and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Why isn't he down here doing stuff? Well, he has emissaries. He has ambassadors that are supposed to be the representation of him to the entire world. And they don't number in the hundreds. They number in the millions. They number in the billions, right? So when he says, you're the light of the world, we call him the light of the world. We even sing the songs, you're the light of the world. And he calls you the light of the world. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, in all these things, when Jesus says things like this, stop for a minute and figure out what he's saying. Can a city on a hill be hidden? Hypothetically, you could put a blanket over it if you had a big enough blanket, right? But really, what happens when you're like driving out, you know, through the wilderness and stuff like that, and, and, and you see, you know, a light off in the distance? Sometimes those lights can be 10, 15, 20 miles away. You can still see it, right? It is hard to hide a city because there's light and life going on there. And he says, you're not a city in a valley, you're the city on a hill. And the light's coming from you, and everybody can see it from far off, right? A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. Isn't that true? I mean, you've got lamps in your house, right? Where do you put them? Under a basket? Not even one of them, right? What about when your lights go out? My kids love it when the lights go out. I don't like it as much. Every once in a while, the electricity fails, right? And everything goes out. And especially if I'm watching TV, it's very irritating, right? And the kids are all, yeah, lights are out. But then what are you doing? You're trying to find flashlights. You're using your phone. Eventually, you're trying to light candles and things like that because you need some light, right? So nobody lights light to hide it. People light light for it to be seen. And in this way, Jesus is kind of telling us, I did not light your light for you to sit around and do nothing. You get that, right? He doesn't light lights for that purpose. He doesn't light them to hide them. He lights them to bring them out. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? They won't give the glory to you if you don't get the glory. Really, your basic orientation should be you don't want the glory, but you want God to have the glory. This is the motivation for Christian good works. It's really not to save yourself. How many good works would you have to have in order to save yourself by them? Well, you'd have to measure the infinite value of God's righteousness. Now, think about an infinite for a minute, right? We always think about an infinite as just a lot more numbers, right? But an infinite is unending, and the righteousness of God is unending. And so an offense against God is of infinite negative value. And so how many good works do you think you would have to do to rise to the level of God's absolute perfect standard of righteousness? 
How many? Unending. It's kind of like we just continue digging the hole, digging the hole. We try to be righteous enough for God, but we don't find it within ourselves. And so he sends Christ into the world to be perfect. You know, we, we say that thing where we confess that every day we sin in thought, word, and deed. Well, Christ never sinned in thought, word, or deed. I'll tell you, you know, a couple things. I'll tell you a couple of uncomfortable things. First of all, I've been here a year, a year now. Some of you have probably noticed that I'm not actually perfect. <laughs> it's probably occurred to you in your thoughts. You know, he's not perfect. He's just one of us with more tennis shoes. <laughs> and believe it or not, I might have had a thought or two myself. We all know the things we're not supposed to do, and we try to avoid the actual outward expression of doing things, right? The scriptures even make the distinction, and we'll get into that further into this sermon that Jesus is giving. He makes a distinction between doing something and only thinking about it in your heart. And he says, no, they're, they're both sin, right? He says, you know, it's one thing to murder somebody, but if you've hated them in your heart, you really have murdered them, right? You just don't have the guts to follow through. Isn't that the way it is? So he talks about that all of us are broken. All of us need Christ. You know, in a lot of theologies, they talk again and again about the love of God and about the grace of God and about the acceptance of God. Well, the great theologians through history, all these guys, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Hodge, they've all had this idea for you. If you don't lay a basic foundation of the sinfulness and brokenness of man and the human heart, you can never really explain to people grace and mercy and salvation. you got to do both. Because as long as they think that grace and mercy and salvation is something dependent upon them, they don't know grace or mercy or salvation. So us recognizing that we're broken before a holy God, that's the beginning. And then recognizing that God has given us something that we couldn't earn and we couldn't get for ourselves, that's the second thing. And then comes this third thing of the expression of it in our lives. Because we really know we couldn't save ourselves and we weren't worthy of being saved and he saved us anyway. And that changes the way we look at other people and think about other people and act toward other people. We're really all just starving people trying to tell other people where to get bread. We don't really feed anybody. We don't really teach anybody. We sure don't save anybody. But we have salvation, and it has made us happy. It has made us glad. I've told you guys many times, the basic psychological orientation of the Christian is happiness. And a lot of times people have a struggle with, how do I get to that? Well, this is how you get there. You recognize that you had nothing, and you were given something. And then you just want to give it away. The way that we live this out in the manifestation of our lives, this is what changes us. Sitting around like a bright light under a basket, it doesn't get you to happiness because it's the expression of it in your life that really makes it real. I'm going to be teaching these homeschool classes, and one of the things that I teach the kids right off the bat is the difference between a theoretical truth and a practical truth. Theory and practice. In the old language, theoreticus and practicus. Theory and practice. It goes all the way back to the ancient philosophers. Plato wrote about it. Aristotle wrote about it. In all of the great teaching of the 
academic institutions through history, they always make the distinction between theory and practice. Here's theory. Theory is what you think. Practice is what you do. Now, all of us who are parents and have been down that rocky road have all noticed that every once in a while your children find a difference between your theory and your practice, right? You say one thing, but you do something else, right? And we've all been there on that. We struggle against it, but really, sometimes our theory is so perfect that our practice can't quite do all of it, right? Well, your theory is what you think, and your practice is what you do. Your faith is your theoretical impulse, right? It's what you believe. Now, what he's saying here is thinking it ain't enough. It also has to be expressed in your practice. And if there's one thing that the world, the people outside these doors notice, it's when our practice is not lining up with our theory. With what we do, it's not lining up with what we say we believe. They fasten on to that, and they'll bring it before your face again and again, and sometimes it can make you a little bad. And what's the word that they learned out of the Bible that they'll use for us? Hypocrite, hypocrite right? They don't really understand what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite isn't somebody that wants to be perfect and can't. A hypocrite is somebody that says, you should do this like I do, but really they're doing something else, right? The, the normal Christian is not a hypocrite. They're just a sinner who's received the saving grace of Christ. And so we struggle with sin like everyone else in thought, word, and deed. It is true that we should get to a place in our sanctification where we don't outwardly do failures of sin on a continuous basis, right? If you're by nature a murderer, you should kind of get over that in your Christian faith. So, well, you're at least not murdering regularly, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but at the same time, if your struggle is with something else, something that's even very acceptable in the common society, but Christ has said, no, not for us, not for our people, then there are steps you can take to rein that in so that it does not become expressed externally in the world, right? So as we go on with this, who are these people that he's talking to? Now, I told you uh, last week and even the week before, there are three or four different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount as far as big ones. One is that he's only talking to the Jews. He's not talking to the Christians. And so the entire formation of the Christian church was kind of accidental. God didn't really see it coming. And so he starts to preach the gospel to the Christians after this point. So this doesn't apply to us at all. We don't have to do any of this. Now, that was... I'm going to call it the most popular interpretation of this passage in the United States of America from the 1950s all the way through the 1970s. And it's horribly wrong. Here, he's going to be going into this sermon where he's going to be talking about anger and adultery and uh, hypocrisy and lying. And then he winds it all up with loving your enemies as yourselves. He's doing an exposition of the moral law of God. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. He's not going to say you can really do all of this perfectly, but he's going to show us that our problem goes all the way down to the heart. It's not merely the external expression. I told you once about a conversation I had with Dennis Prager. He's a very famous uh, uh, Jewish commentator who's on the radio a lot and TV shows. And he considers himself to be a historic Jew. In other words, he has the interpretation of the Pharisees. They kind of think Jesus was a really good rabbi who kind of got 
messed up by the Apostle Paul and accidentally started Christianity. We don't believe that. But he also goes into this, right? He says, really, it doesn't matter what's going on in your heart. God can't judge your heart. God only judges what's going on outside of you. So whatever you do in your heart is fair game. You can hate people in your heart. That's not a sin. But if you actually hit them, then you're committing a sin. And Christianity has historically backed way away from that because of these passages on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what if you don't have all these? What if you cut all of these out and you think they're just for other people but not for you? How are you going to say then to somebody, thou shalt not murder? How are you going to say, thou shalt not commit adultery? How are you going to say, you shall not steal? The answer to this tended to come from certain charismatic movements that said, no, we're led by the Spirit. We're not under the law. We're led by the Spirit. And when people say that to me, I always say, what is the Holy Spirit then leading you to do? Because if it's murder and stealing and lying and adultery, you've got a really bad interpretation of this passage, right? That's not my Holy Spirit. When they came to Martin Luther and they gave him that Holy Spirit, he said, I will slap your Holy Spirit right on the snout. <laughs> he was not playing with that. So the historic interpretation is he's talking to us. Was he talking to the Jews? Sure he was. Is he talking to the Christians at that time? Sure he was. Is he talking to us right now? Sure he is. He is. So in this, this people who are under this have tended to be interpreted through a few things that are the expressions of faith. Calvin said that the primary expression of the human faith is prayer. That's not exactly what we would think, but he said the primary thing, the first thing that faith does is pray because faith, prayer is faith living and breathing, he says. If you're a believing person, you're a praying person. You're praying always. You're praying in thought, word, and deed. You're talking to God as if you're talking to other people around you. Your entire life is one in which the interaction with God is through getting down on your hands and knees or even down on your face and communicating with God so that you can live the life of faith. The next one with that, after that, uh, by the way, on prayer and things, I've told you this before, I'm going to tell you again now, if you find that you have a hard time praying or working out prayer, or you just get confused, or you just don't know what to say to God and stuff, come, and you and I will work on it. We will get together. This might sound strange, but in the old days, with the Puritans, they used to do this. I will teach you how to pray. I will teach you how to get comfortable getting one-on-one -on -one with God and what to say and what to do in order to have that time of prayer that you feel like you have prayed to your God and he has been there with you. If you think that can't be learned, Jesus spent a lot of time out in the desert teaching 12 guys how to pray, didn't he? So we can learn this. It's not one of those things where you have to sit around feeling confused, like, how do I learn to pray? It is a learned thing, but it is also one of the centers of the Christian experience. Another, after prayer, is praise. When there's prayer, there's praise. When we come together and we sing these songs, I know you don't like every song we do. Let me tell you something. Nobody likes every song we do. You're never going to go to any church where you like every song you do, right? You sit around and wait for the ones you like, and you sing them twice as loud. Da, 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 da. Oh, I like that one, right? There's a lady named Lauren Daigle, and she has the number one album in the country in all genres, and it's all worship songs. Even the world loves worship songs, right? There's something about praising God that lifts your spirit and your contemplations to the Holy One 
that changes your disposition and is an expression of a true and lively faith. It brings you this immediate need, I need to praise. I know that a lot of you, when you get here on Sunday, you're here for one reason, and it's not to hear me go on and on. I want to praise God. I want to be among the people of God. I want to sing the songs. I want to sit there in their presence and think about holy things that are going on in heaven. So there's prayer and there's praise. And the third one is repentance. Now, this is the one that most churches these days tend to avoid, but I guarantee you it is a necessary component of the Christian life, of a true and lively faith. That also we leave behind the things that were stumbling us before and we start a new life. Faith and repentance are really two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. How can I say I believe in Christ and who he was and what he did and then immediately go back like a dog going back to its vomit, like a pig wallowing in the mud? That's scripture's words. I'm not making those up, right? So faith and repentance are always together. Is it a perfect repentance in this life? No, it's not a perfect repentance. We struggle with it. And every person here will have different struggles with different things. But faith, as expressed through prayer, praise, and repentance, these are the things that will invigorate the Christian life and make you effective at being a light in the world. Now, this is focusing on the person, right? It's not really a focus on the church at this point. I'm just saying what it will do for you to get you ready to do that. We do do some things corporately. Did you know that God ordained churches like this? We didn't make this up. There's a big movement with some people that, you know, really we shouldn't have churches like this. Everybody should go to church in somebody's house. Well, that just makes people's house a church. And people have arbitrary rules like you should have 30 or 40 people, no more in a church because then you can't know each other. And I have gone to church. I've been a staff at churches with 10,000 people. I've attended churches with 30,000 people. I think they're still churches. When the Apostle Paul went out to preach, where did he usually preach his sermons? In the synagogue, which is just the Old Testament word for the church, right? When Jesus preached, he preached a lot of places. Right here he's preaching on a mountain, but where did he also preach a lot? The temple, the synagogue, right? The idea that the Bible is against an organizationally constructed church that has commonness to it, where people can come together and worship each other, that that's not something in the Bible, uh, that's not something in the Bible. This is ordained. And even the order of it, that you'll have pastors and elders and deacons, it's all right out of the Bible. We are not making this stuff up. So if God put together an order for the well-being of your spiritual life, we should pay attention to it. Now, are there different interpretations of that that could all be valid? Sure. But everything we do is an interpretation. Right? So you're going to have to decide which one you believe is best. So in this, good works are the expression of faith. You know, here's the thing. It's part of the nature of our covenant with God. You remember, we come together with God and we make a promise. He gives us promises and we give him promises. And in that, we promise to have a certain expression of holiness in our life. Now, holiness is mainly the expression of faith through prayer praise and repentance but it also has this other thing where jesus brings back to us again and again love the lord your god with all your mind heart soul and strength but also love your neighbor as yourself now when he teaches us what that is it starts to get heavy it starts to get hard he tells you love those who hate you and persecute you he tells you love the poor he tells you love people that are unlovable it's so nice if we just have to love people that are lovely, right? It's so nice if we just have to love people that love us first. And then he says, love people that 
into. Because a covenant-keeping person is a relationship-keeping person. The reason I'm using relationship when it doesn't use it in the text is that's the way we would interpret it these days. That's an English word for this, and I tend to speak English. A covenant-keeping person is a relationship-keeping person, right? Things that we do that break our relationship with others, things like gossip and envy and stealing and violence and all of these things, they break down the relationship with others and they break our commitment and our covenant with others through our covenant with God. So we can't think that we're okay with God when our relationships with everyone around us are in chaos. We can't do that. We're just lying to ourselves at that point. Now, is there always somebody that will just not be at peace with you? Is there always somebody... There's always somebody at work, you know, there's just this guy, and he's bugging me, right? Is there always going to be somebody that's just not into you, that just does not think you're as cool as you think you are? I get that a lot, personally. <laughs> is, there, is there always somebody that's just not going to be okay with your faith? I remember the first time. I remember it when I was a kid. The first time some kids came up to me and made fun of my faith. I just had this really naive idea that everybody was kind of Christians, right? And these kids came up to me and my brothers, and you know, and they walked right up to me, and you know what they called me? Goody two-shoes. And I didn't know what that meant, so I was like, what? Of course I have two shoes. And then they started to sing it. Goody two-shoes, goody two-shoes, na-na-na-na-na-na. And I didn't have to do anything because my brother Jimmy punched him right in the mouth. which is probably not the best response when you think about it. But I cried. And I might not have really wanted to be a Christian so much that day. I didn't want people to think badly of me. I wanted my Christianity to be a means to people accepting me and thinking well of me. And that was my mistake. Because it doesn't work that way. Being a light to the world, it's not like they're all moths, right? They're just attracted to that light. That's not exactly true. Light is disturbing, and people are like, put out that light, kid. So if you're going to shine the light, the effect of that might be that people are not as happy with you as they used to be. On uh, the thing, I know a lot of people have a lot of concerns about Facebook and social media and things, but a lot of my friends on Facebook are people I've known for 40 years, some of them longer than that, you know? And really, a lot of them, my only connection with them is Facebook and an occasional post, right? And a lot of these people knew me all the way up through the time I was a teenager. And, and as soon as I got serious about my faith in my early 20s, they were gone. Some of them didn't talk to me for 20 years. Now, they're older now, and they've kind of calmed down a little. But the level of animosity that I got for going into ministry was really huge. I really think that probably I lost every friend I ever had from my early life by going into ministry and getting serious about it and starting to talk about Jesus. Jesus did not help my social life like at all. But I had to decide early, hey, it's the truth. The truth has set me free, and I'm going to walk in this way, right? I am going to walk this life, and if nobody goes with me, I'm still going, right? 
because I believe in Christ and what he's done for me. I know what he's done to my heart and mind and soul, and I'm going to walk this way. And sometimes, you know, some of you will see them on my Facebook site arguing with me about things using colorful language. But you know what? A few of them have come to know the Lord. Not necessarily through me, but I don't care how, right? And the change in them has been remarkable. And that is what happens. We give up on nobody if we understand what he's done to us, right? If you understand you did not save yourselves, God saved you, you never give up on anybody. Because it's never too late. It's never too late. So in this, we always want to remember the positive and negative manifestations of the Spirit. The negative manifestations is we stop doing things that hurt other people and damage our relationships with them, right? The positive aspect is we start to do things that take care of other people and make them well and make them whole. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. We're almost done. This will not be one of my super long sermons. 1 Corinthians 13. Now, those of you that are Bible students, you already know what this is. But we're going to read this. Here he says, if I speak in the tongues of men or even angels, can you imagine if you could speak in the language of angels, but I don't have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, all of these are religious things to do. You guys recognize that, right? Because love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. Think about that. Did you know that a few of those different words there just means you put up with things? I know that's hard. What kind of things do you think they're talking about? Economic downturn in the uh, stock market? Probably not. What kind of things is he talking about that you're supposed to bear with? Come on. Mark knew earlier. He just didn't want to say it because he didn't want to be first. But you guys know he's talking about people. He's not just talking about things that happen in life. Who are you supposed to put up with and bear with and be patient with and carry so that they can lean on you a little so they can make it to the end of this road? Who is the burden that you're supposed to help carry? It's the people around you. Yes. So that's what he means when he says here, love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love is a heavy, heavy responsibility. But if you were going to shine that light into the world, it's going to be through love. So faith produces love. For people that have told you love is the essence of Christianity, it's not. Love is the law. Love the Lord your God, that's the law. 
You're not saved by your love. You're saved by your faith. But a true and lively faith, a faith that's actually enlivened by the Holy Spirit, the theory will always express itself in a practice, which is love for God and love for your neighbor. Let's pray. <coughs>